Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, Clark Cawthorn, who's a pastor in Michigan, 
he shares the story how one time, when he was in college, he had the opportunity to travel throughout Europe with a Christian music group. Well, after their concert in Stockholm, Sweden, Clark Cawthorn uh, was assigned to be with a roommate. Uh, the roommate's name was Colin. He had never met Colin before, but they were both young people. And they were put with a host family, a couple, uh, this lovely couple. They were in their early 60s, uh, this Swedish couple. And they didn't speak a single word of English. And so Colin, who had kind of a weird sense of humor, he decided that he would have fun with the language barrier. And so what happened was the two young people, Clark and Colin, they're on the tram with the couple for what seemed like 10 miles heading to their apartment. And all of a sudden, Colin looked at the couple. He began to smile, began to nod. And then he said aloud, these nice people are probably serial killers. And he continued to smile and nod as he said that. Well, the couple saw him smiling and nodding. And so they also began to smile and nod as if they were affirming what he was saying. And then he continued, they're probably going to take us to an abandoned warehouse just outside of town. And again, the couple continued to smile and nod, not knowing what Colin was actually saying. Well, then they got to the couple's apartment, and the couple being the kind, hospitable, lovely people that they were, they served Clark and Colin some tea and crackers and some really stinky white cheese. Colin took one bite of the cheese, and he said, this is the worst cheese that I've ever eaten in my entire life. But he kept smiling and nodding, and then he was rubbing his stomach as if he were enjoying the cheese. And then he said, if I have to take another bite of this cheese, I'm going to be sick. But he continued to rub his stomach, smile and nod, while a look of understanding crossed the host mom's face. And so she took a knife and she cut an extra large slice of that stinky white cheese and she placed it on the plate right next to his crackers. Clark Hawthorne says that that moment, as funny as it was, as humorous as it was, it stood as a sobering reminder that words and actions can often tell different stories. Isn't that true? Words and actions can often tell different stories. And in fact, that's the very thing that we're going to be talking about this morning, how our words and actions should not tell different stories, but the same story. Uh, last Sunday morning uh, here at Asbury, we started this new sermon series called Behind the Veil, Behind the Veil. It's a six-week series, and in the six-week series, uh, we are looking at, we are exploring, we are analyzing the stories of various women in the Old Testament. Even though these women, as we mentioned last week, uh, these women lived in a culture that was patriarchal, a culture where unfortunately women were relegated to hidden roles, they were treated as second-class citizens, and yet these women found creative ways to challenge that culture, subvert that culture, and do remarkable things for God. Uh, they have left this uh, legacy for us to learn from, and so we're allowing their stories to speak God's truth into our lives as 21st century people. The woman that we started with last week as we began this new series, and Pastor Will mentioned this uh, during his prayer, is Miriam. Miriam. We called Miriam the original big sister. Uh, Miriam was Moses' big sister, and she shrewdly rescued her brother Moses from certain death when he was a baby. In fact, had Miriam not intervened and done something, Moses probably would have been killed. 
And we use Miriam's story to talk about the virtue, the importance of shrewdness, using shrewd, clever, wise thinking for the kingdom of God, to be of service to God in this world. Well, as we continue chronologically through the Old Testament, we come this morning to our next heroine, and that would be Rahab. Rahab. Rahab is a tremendous example of somebody whose words and actions told the same story. But she's also an unusual example, given her background and what she was known for. So just some Bible information, some Bible history as we get into uh, Rahab's story. uh, Rahab lived about 1,100 years before the time of Jesus. I actually inadvertently said at the last service it was probably 1,400 years before the time of Jesus, but in actuality, it was probably 1,100 years before the time of Jesus. So if Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, then Rahab would have lived about 3,100 years ago. And Rahab lived in the town of Jericho. Now, Jericho is considered by a number of archaeologists to be the oldest city in the entire world with settlements going all the way back to 11,000 years ago. But when Rahab was alive, the town of Jericho was populated by a group of people known as the Canaanites. You ever heard of the Canaanites before? In fact, in the sermon last week, uh, we talked about Abraham. And so you may recall that in Genesis 12, and in subsequent chapters of the book of Genesis, God told Abraham that he and his offspring, the Israelites, because Abraham is the Jewish patriarch, Uh, He said to Abraham that he and his descendants were going to inherit the land of Canaan, uh, that that's where God's people were going to live. And so the Canaanites were essentially living in the very land, the very territory that God intended to give to the people of Israel. So what happened after the Exodus, the Exodus, of course, is one of the most important events of the entire Old Testament. After the Exodus, Moses led the people of God, the people of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt And then he took them to the very edge of Canaan. But just before the people of Israel went inside, God told Moses to send out 12 spies. Why 12 spies? Because how many tribes are there in Israel? 12 tribes. So to send out 12 spies and to scope out the land, check things out, bring a report back on the people who are living there. So these spies come back after 40 days of being there. And do they bring back a positive report Generally speaking, no. Uh, they're kind of like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh, just, well, was us. They, they bring back this negative report. They do say, to their credit, yes, this land that God wants to give us, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a place of incredible resources, abundant resources. But the people who are living there, they're giants. They're skilled warriors. We're grasshoppers compared to them. There is no way that we're going to be able to take over this land. Only two spies of the 12 spies actually brought back an encouraging word. Do you remember who those two spies were? Joshua, and who was the other one? Caleb, Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb told the people of God, hey, listen, yes, we have our work cut out for us, but you got to remember, God is on our side. Put your faith in God. But the people didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb. Instead, they listened to the other 10 spies because fear, and we all know this to be true, fear tends to be more contagious than courage does. Amen. And so what happened, God grew upset with the people of Israel, and God told the people of Israel that because of their lack of faith, they would wander in the desert for 40 years, an entire generation, until those who didn't believe in the power of God had passed away. So fast forward 
40 years. By this point, Moses has passed away, but not before passing on the baton of leadership to Joshua. So Joshua assumes the responsibility of leading some 600,000 Israelites, that's our estimation, 600,000 Israelites into the land of Canaan, the promised land. But before he does this, Joshua sends out two spies, not 12, but two spies, to check things out. Now, some commentators wonder why Joshua does this, because the last time spies were sent out, it resulted in a 40-year detour. So maybe this isn't a good idea. But I think Joshua's purpose is strategic more than anything else. Joshua does not want the people of God to be caught off guard. He wants them to know what they're getting themselves into, to be prepared. But at the same time, he also doesn't want this negativity to spread just in case the spies bring back a bad report. So what does Joshua do? The text that we're going to read this morning tells us that Joshua sends out the spies secretly. Can you say that word with me? Secretly. And so these two spies, they arrive in Jericho, one of the major cities of Canaan. Only as soon as they get there, their lives are in jeopardy because the king of Jericho hears about their arrival. But that's when the spies find refuge in the home of a person named Rahab, which takes us to her story. Listen carefully with me to these words. Uh, This is from the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. It's kind of a long passage. Uh, We're going to read this passage, and then we'll talk about it together as much as we can in the time that we have left. Then Joshua, as we said, he does this secretly. Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into your house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you could probably catch up with them. And then the editor gives this comment. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax that she had laid out. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror, for we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River whose people you completely destroy. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all their families. We offer our own lives. As a guarantee for your safety, the men agreed, if you don't betray us, 
We will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us a land. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we all say, thanks be to God. Rahab was a person of remarkable faith, which is telling, given her profession and what her background was and what she did for a living. Listen again with me to what the text says about Rahab in the second half of verse 1, the book of Joshua, chapter 2. It says, so the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. Now, going to a prostitute's house might seem kind of suspicious to us as modern readers of this passage. We're reading this passage 3,100 years after it happened. But strategically, it actually made a lot of sense for the spies to go to Rahab's house. Think about this with me. Number one, Rahab was used to having male visitors come and go. So seeing two strange men go into her house, that would have raised a lot of suspicion from the people of the community. They would have assumed, okay, those guys, we don't recognize them, but they're probably clients of Rahab. Number two, because Rahab was a prostitute, she didn't have a great relationship with the other people of the community. The other people of the community would have looked down upon her. They would have thought of themselves as better than her, superior to her. If she had been walking down the road, they probably would have walked in the other direction. And so it was easier for the spies to trust her, knowing that she probably didn't speak to a whole lot of people. But then number three, in addition to these reasons, brothels are a great place to gather intelligence. And why is that? Because the people who frequent brothels also have a tendency to do other things like consume alcohol. And as I'm sure we're all aware, when alcohol is being consumed, what happens? Secrets have a way of spilling out. So strategically, it made sense for these spies to go to Rahab's house. But my question is this, were these men expecting to find the kind of faith-filled person that they did? Because as soon as they get to Rahab's house, word gets out about their arrival. Somebody tells the king of Jericho. We don't know who this person was, but somebody informs the king that the spies are at Rahab's house. And so the king, what he does is he sends his officials, his men, to Rahab's house to bring out the men. Rahab answers the door, but she tells the king's officials that the men have left. She wasn't aware that they were spies. They're gone. Meanwhile, what does she do? She hides them up on her roof, underneath some flax. Now, some people say, well, wait a minute. Technically, Rahab lied. And isn't lying wrong? Isn't that what we teach in church? Isn't that part of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not bear false witness. So why do we commend Rahab if Rahab lied? Well, actually, according to Jewish ethics, there's this principle called pikuach nefesh. Every time I read this, I want to say Pikachu, uh, but it's actually pikuach nefesh. That's a reference to Pokemon, if you're not familiar. Pikuach nefesh is Hebrew for to save a life or to save a soul. And what this principle is basically getting at is that the preservation of human life overrides virtually any other religious rule of Judaism. So even though the law of Moses states, because remember, God gave Moses the law when they were in the desert up on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment says, do not lie, do not bear false witness. Even though the law of Moses says that, and generally speaking, we should follow that rule, but it is permissible to set aside that part of the law if it means that a human life is going to be saved in the process. 
And actually, Jesus himself seemed to follow this principle of pikuach nefesh whenever Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Remember how the religious leaders criticized Jesus for healing on the Sabbath because technically you shall not work on the Sabbath? That's what it also says in the Ten Commandments. I believe that's the fourth commandment. Do not work. Jesus was probably following this principle of pikuach nefesh. He was recognizing the value of human life. Just like Rahab was recognizing the value of human life. Was Rahab lying for the sake of lying? No. Was she lying out of self-interest? No. Rather, she was lying for the sake of the spies so that their lives could be protected and looked after. Rahab's actions came from a place of deep, deep faith. A faith that probably, in all likelihood, even surprised these spies. Because what happens is the spies are up on the roof and Rahab comes up and she speaks with them just before they go to bed. Check out again what Rahab says in her comments to them. This is from Joshua 2, verses 9 through 11. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk to them, or to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them, for we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Rahab could have easily dismissed these reports that she had been hearing about the God of Israel. She could have considered these reports to be fabrications, exaggerations. But instead, Rahab was open to the truth about God, which tells us something really important. It tells us that God was at work in Rahab's life even before she knew who God was. God was at work in Rahab's life even before she knew who God was. Exactly, Pastor Barber. Have you listened to the sermon already? Yeah. We as United Methodists have a name for that kind of divine activity. Pastor Barber, what do we call it? We call it prevenient grace. Prevenient is a Latin word. It means to come before, to proceed, to go ahead. And what prevenient grace means is that God's grace goes before us. God's grace goes ahead of us. God's grace precedes us. God's grace is present in every single person's life. Even in people that we would never suspect. It doesn't matter what their background is, what their story is. God is working in every person's life. God is moving in that person. God is nudging that person into relationship with himself. When I think of prevenient grace, in addition to Rahab's story, I'm reminded of a story that one of my pastor friends shares. He says that when he was in seminary, in his first year, he was doing a unit of what the seminary called supervised ministry. Supervised ministry. And what that basically means is um, you're engaged in a ministry, but you're under supervision. People are watching you closely, making sure that you're doing things properly, uh, that you're following protocol and things like that. And the place where he was doing supervised ministry was in a hospital. He was a hospital chaplain. And Pastor Will did this when he was in seminary. I did this when I was in seminary. Pastor Barber, were you also a hospital chaplain at one point? If not, you did a lot of hospital visits over the course of your ministry. Okay, came later on. Uh, so a lot of pastors do this when they're studying and, and in school. Well, my pastor friend at the time, he was in his early to mid-20s, didn't really have a whole lot of life experience, and he felt so inadequate. Here he was ministering to people who were sick and dying. Well, one day a nurse 
asked him if he would visit a patient named Walter. He had never met Walter before. Apparently, Walter uh, was dying, and he didn't have any family members or friends. Nobody ever came to see him. And so the nurse asked my pastor friend, would you please pay Walter a visit? And he said, yes. So he went in Walter's room, and immediately, Walter was abrasive. He was standoffish. He said, I don't know who you are. I don't know who sent you. I don't need any visitors. Get out of here. I, I, I don't want to talk to the chaplain. My pastor friend was just about to leave, but right before he walked out the door, because he wanted to honor what Walter was saying, but right before he walked out the door, Walter said, well, wait a minute. And then he began to open up, talked about his struggles, said how scared he was that he was probably dying. So my pastor friend sat down with him, reflected with him, ministered to him. And then toward the end of the visit, my pastor friend simply said, Walter, can I please lead us in a word of prayer? And he said, all right. Grabbed his hand, prayed with him. And then during the prayer, he said something to the effect of, Lord, please cover Walter with your warmth and your love like a warm blanket. Then he said, amen. Opened his eyes. Walter was crying profusely. He still had his hand. And then he pulled him toward himself. He wrapped his arms around him. He hugged him. He embraced him. He began to rock him back and forth. And then he said, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Please cover me like a blanket. God was moving in Walter's life. This man who initially was abrasive, standoffish, didn't want to visit from the chaplain. God is moving in every single human being's life. Even the people that we would never imagine or suspect. Rahab was a Canaanite. The Canaanites were considered enemies of the Israelites. She was an outsider. And on top of that, she was a prostitute, a profession that people looked down on. And yet God was moving in her in such a way that when she heard reports about the God of Israel, she was open to those reports. And not only was she open to those reports, but she also put her faith in God, and she expressed that faith through concrete action. Listen again to these words from Rahab in verse 11 as she's speaking with the spies, conversing with them. She says, No wonder our hearts have melted in fear, for the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Now what's interesting is, Rahab is clearly not the only Canaanite who has heard about God. Does she say, my heart is melted in fear? No, she says, our hearts have melted in fear. She's speaking collectively for all the Canaanites. She's speaking on behalf of her people. All the Canaanites are living in fear of the God of Israel. But only Rahab was open to putting her faith in God and actually saving those spies. Which in an interesting turn of events, and this is what I love about this story, in an interesting turn of events, the fact that she saved the spies actually led by God's grace to her own salvation. It led to her own salvation physically because when the spies, or when the people came to conquer the land, to conquer Jericho, they didn't touch Rahab, they didn't touch her family, they were all left alone. But it didn't just lead to her physical salvation, it also led to her spiritual salvation. Rahab ended up being included among the people of God. For example, when we go to the New Testament, what's the first book of the New Testament? Do you remember? 
the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, I think it's about five verses in, Matthew shares with us a genealogy for Jesus, and Rahab is actually listed in the genealogy for Jesus. She is listed as one of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior's ancestors. But not only is she mentioned there in Matthew's gospel, she's also mentioned two other times in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11 and in James chapter 2. And in both of those passages, in Hebrews 11 and James 2, and you can read these passages on your own when you get home, Rahab is identified as an example of somebody who expressed her faith through action. Which truthfully is what God expects of all of us as human beings, as followers of him. That we would live out our faith, not just by what we say, not just by what we believe, but we would live out our faith in terms of what we do. Woody Allen, the great theologian, right? Woody Allen once famously quipped that 90% of life is what? Do you remember? Showing up. He says 90% of life is showing up, and far too many of us as Christians seem to be under the impression that 90% of faith is simply belief. Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I, I ascend mentally to a doctrine or a teaching. Or far too many of us assume that 90% of faith is saying that we're Christian, checking off the Christian box when we're filling out a survey. But what if we, what if we, like Rahab, actually allow the content of our faith to spill out into action? What if we stop sitting on the sidelines making excuses and actually begin to embody our faith in concrete, tangible, and life-giving ways? Back in 2014, eight years ago, Dr. Zen Harinki who's a neurosurgeon, he had just finished surgery. Well, after he got out of surgery, he got a call that he needed to go to a nearby hospital as soon as possible. Apparently, there was a patient there who needed emergency surgery, and only Dr. Harinki could perform the surgery. The problem was the hospital was located six miles away, which really isn't that far, but there was also a terrible blizzard going on, probably the worst blizzard that that community had ever seen. So Dr. Harinki got in his car, he began to drive to the hospital, every single road was blocked. He couldn't get anywhere. So the hospital called him on a cell phone and they asked him, what's your ETA, what's your, what's your estimated time of arrival, are you even coming? And he said, I, I can't get anywhere. And then finally he said, I give up, I'm just going to walk. So he left his car there. He began to walk six miles to the hospital. It took him five hours to get there through that blizzard. When he got there, he talked with the patient's family for a few minutes. The patient had already been prepped for surgery, and then he performed the surgery, and thanks be to God, the surgery went well. Later on, there were news reporters covering the story, and the nurse said to the news reporters that had Dr. Harinki not performed the surgery, that patient probably would have died. And then the news reporters asked Dr. Harinki to comment on what he had done, and this is what he said. I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing my job. I think Rahab would have said the same things when she hid those spies. I'm just doing my job. May all of us as God's people do our job, so to speak, as we embody our faith, as we express our faith through action. May we, may we be open to the Spirit of God as God moves in us and through us to accomplish His kingdom work in our very midst.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for Rahab, this remarkable woman whom we just spoke about. The truth is, God, we don't know everything about Rahab's story. We don't know what led her to become a prostitute. For all we know, she might not have had many other choices. Maybe it was a way to provide for her family. Certainly, she had been exploited by so many men in Jericho. And yet, God, your grace was at work in her life, and she was open to that grace. We praise you for that. And we also praise you for the way that she put her faith into action. May all of us this morning follow in her footsteps. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.